Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za If you are visiting us today, you are visiting us on a day when we are completing a short series on in 2 Thessalonians. So I'm going to ask you to turn there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We have been looking at the passage from verse 13. And today we are concluding uh, a passage from verse 16. Allow me just to, as you're turning there, to, uh, to encourage you uh, to come to the prayer service, prayer meeting uh, at 8.30 in the month of February. The month of February we are dedicating to praying together as a congregation, as there are many things happening in the life of our church. And we need the Lord more than ever. It was rather empty this morning. And so I would encourage you to commit, at least for the month of February, to come 8.30 in the morning and let's pray together as a congregation and, uh, and cry out to the Lord to help us and to give thanks to Him as well. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll read again from verse 13, but our attention this morning will be verses 16 and 17, and we will also uh, pay attention to verse 5 of chapter 3. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Verse 5 of chapter 3. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Indeed. The human heart is perhaps the most complicated system in existence. And when I say the human heart, I'm not referring to the physical heart, though the physical heart is quite complicated itself. When I'm saying the physical heart, I'm referring to what the the scriptures refer to as the, the human heart, which is the center of our consciousness, the seat of the will, 
and the fountain of our affections. That's what the scripture refers to when it talks about our hearts. J. Stowell puts it this way, Heart is used in scripture as the most comprehensive term for the authentic person. It is the part of our being where we desire, deliberate, and decide. It has been described as the place of conscious and decisive spiritual activity. The comprehensive term for a person as a whole. His feelings, his desires, his passions, his thoughts, his understanding, and his will. What moves him. That's what I mean when I'm talking about heart, the the inner being, the inner, the true self that you are. And of the many complexities of the human heart is that there is a thick wall between head knowledge and experiential knowledge. There's a big, thick chasm between head knowledge and, and experiential knowledge, that is heart knowledge. See, you are capable of knowing about something and affirming certain truths, but at the same time not knowing that thing at all. You are capable of saying, I know, know here's the, the details, but you actually have, you're not living as one who has tasted of those truths. If you are a doctor, when your patient comes in, you would be able to describe how that patient's body works, and how that body, how patient, patient's body should work, and you could easily understand what is wrong with them based on what you know, of course, in the medical profession. And you are able to know a lot, you know a lot more about that person than they even know about themselves. But do you really know that person? No, you don't know the person. Doctors know the structure the biology, but they don't know the person. It's the same for us. There is a difference between knowing the facts and stats and actually knowing the reality. Now, I want you to think about this complex problem and apply it to our understanding of the gospel of God. You know the gospel. You know the gospel. If you're a part and parcel of this congregation, I know that you know the gospel. You know of your own sin. You know that Christ came to die. You can defend and argue for the salvation of saints and God's of saints and God's electing work in salvation. You know that you will enter into the glory of Christ as we saw 2 weeks ago. But the question is do you really know these things? You can rattle off the facts, but do you know the reality? The fact of our complexity in the human heart is that we forget. There are days where the fact that I am saved and that I am in Christ is the most important thing about me in my lived experience. I taste and I see that the Lord is good. I'm overwhelmed by the love of God. And then there are days where the fact that I'm an Auckland Park resident is more real to me. Dealing with the crime, the water issues, having to fix things, traffic lights or the lack thereof. And, and that feels more real to me in my experience. Dealing with the issues, the things that are here, the things that are in front of me, that feels more real. That's more, that feels more like true reality 
than the facts of the gospel are. In those days, it is not so much that I forgot the gospel and its details, but it's that I forget to remember it. Stay with me. We don't forget the gospel details. I'm sure at any time and place, a member of this church can write a book about the gospel. I'm sure of this. Someone on the radio can call you at any time, regardless of what kind of day you're having. Someone on the radio can call you and say, explain to me the gospel, and you, could, you would explain it to them. Christ came to save sinners. You'll never forget the details. The details are there in your head. So you haven't forgotten it. But in those moments, there are certain moments in life where you fail to remember those truths of the gospel in such a way that they affect the way that you live. You fail to remember them, actively remember these truths so that they can affect how you are currently living, how you are currently feeling, what your emotions should be, what your affections should be wanting, and what your will should be pointed to. That's what happens. You forget that the complexity of us is such that there is this wall between the facts and the reality. Now at this point, we would talk about your need to remember the gospel. And we would visit the things that we visited two weeks ago when we discussed the gospel and the glories of the gospel. But that's not what we're doing today because that's not what Paul is doing today. Today, we will hear what God does to ensure that you and I truly remember the gospel. See, God is not surprised by our complexity. And so God has made provision and plan to deal with our forgetfulness of the gospel. And that is what is happening here in our passage from verse 16. Three things that Paul prays for the Thessalonians. Three things. After reminding them of the gospel, which we saw two weeks ago, and imploring them to hold fast to the traditions of the gospel, which we saw last week, he then prays these three things. He prays that they would be comforted, encouraged. He prays that they would be strengthened, or that their hearts may be established in the work of the ministry. And, that, and then he prays in verse 5, chapter 3, that their hearts may be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He prays for comfort, he prays for strengthening, and he prays for direction for our hearts. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at those three things in turn. First, comfort. Look at verse 16 with me again. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. There are two things to note with regards to this comfort that Paul is praying for in verse 17. See, he's, this is saying, he says, may the Lord do this for you. May the Lord comfort your hearts. Well, there are two things I want you to note about this, this comfort that Paul is praying for. First, he notes that the Lord, in verse 16, I hope you notice, 
He knows that the Lord loved us and gave us, past tense, eternal hope, eternal comfort, which comes with good hope through grace. In other words, the comfort that we are asking for in verse 17, the Lord has already given in verse 16. Did you see this? The Lord has given us, through his grace, comfort and good hope through grace. Eternal comfort, that is. And now we're praying that this comfort might come forward and be true to you. Let me, let me explain this this way. Your understanding of salvation is incomplete if it lacks the concept that the Father sympathizes with our condition and trouble such that he has included in the package of salvation an eternal comfort. When you think about salvation as a package, what is involved in that package? You know, DSTV, you know, Netflix, whoever, they're trying to say, here's the package, buy this package. And in this package, you get five screens and et cetera and so forth. Well, in the package of salvation, what is in there? If you believe that the main thing that's in there is forgiveness of sins, your, your understanding of the gospel is terribly immature. Because forgiveness of sins is a huge part of it, but it's not all of it. Notice that in this, in this description of the gospel here from verse 13, there has been no mention of the forgiveness of sins, but there has been a mention of entering the glory of Christ, which, is, which talks about what awaits us when we go there. And here, we're now also being told that eternally, when the Lord thought about, let me design salvation for my people, he thought, in the midst of that, I'm going to design comfort. I'm going to add in this package, comfort. We need to pause on this thought for a moment. The Father, in eternity past, designed for us an eternity where comfort is one of the features. Let me ask you, what do you think is the defining characteristic of living in this age? What's a defining characteristic of living in this age? And when I say this age, I'm talking about the age between the fall of man and the second coming of the Christ, of, of, the, Christ, of the Messiah. The age where man has fallen and is awaiting the Messiah to come and fix everything. What, is the, what do you think is the defining characteristic of life during this time? What is the main thing that pervades life, that is found in all aspects of life, generally, while we are waiting for the Messiah to come and redeem the world? Well, many cases, I'm sure, can be made, but I would propose to you that the defining characteristic of this age is hardship, trouble, tribulation, Problems that keep coming and never end. Different kinds of problems. There are as many kinds of problems as there are people. Hardship and trouble comes for all of us because we are living in the time where the scripture tells us that the ruler of this world is the evil one. The prince of the power of the air is the evil one. 
And because the prince of the power of the air is the one who rules over things, you can expect it, there will be disaster in your life. There will be small, daily annoyances and big troubles that threaten to derail you. They come every now and again in different shapes and sizes. Your own sin will ruin you. You are going to be surprised over and over again by your own capacity to mess things up. If you haven't been surprised yet by your own capacity to mess things up, just wait, it's coming. Just wait, just relax. It's coming. And I'm no prophet, I claim no prophet. I'm just telling you, this is, what the, this is the reality. You are going to mess things up. Live long enough, you're going to mess things up. Out of, for no reason, sometimes you just score an own goal for absolutely no reason. You just turn around and kick it in. What's the point? The scripture in Job chapter 14 and verse 1 puts it this way. Man who is born of a woman is of few days and those few days are full of trouble. Job chapter 14 verse 1. Man who is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. Your time here is short, and that short time is hard. No one escapes it. You think, oh, here are some people, they look like they've got all the money, they've got sorted out certain issues, they have their own problems. Oh, here are poor people, they've got, they've got no money, but, but they have families and things are going, they have their own problems. Every single station, every class of person has problems and trials and issues. Oscar Wilde says this in a different way. He says, in this world, there are only two tragedies. One is not getting what you want, and the other is getting it. The point is here, there is no escape whether you get what you want or you don't get what you want. There is trouble waiting for you in the midst of that. There's always tragedy, always following you. Yes, there are indeed moments of joy and euphoria even. Bafana, bafana. But they are not shorter, but are they not shorter than the lifespan of a butterfly? Those moments of joy and euphoria. You were excited last night if you were up. I don't know why you were up, but okay. You were excited last night at 1 a.m. this morning, but Wednesday is coming. Nigeria is coming for, for us, and we have no idea what's going to happen, right? Like, Wednesday is coming. We're, Victor Oziman is there. <laughs> Moments of joy are there, but they're fleeting. We joy in joy. You go to a wedding and that, 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 that wonderful moment ends. Party has to end. The bride tells you, please, don't, don't, don't do too much. Come down. Don't, don't drink so much from the bar. Please stop it. You know, the, the, there's always something that's, that just limits. There's always a limit. Our experience of time is a succession of moments where one moment of hardship follows another of a different kind. And I want to draw your attention to this. In all of this, I want to draw your attention to this point. The Lord recognizes this and he says eternally he will comfort us. 
The Lord recognizes that we are but dust. And he recognizes that since the fall, our life is just but a a succession of moments of trouble. And so he builds into the package of salvation comfort, encouragement. I will encourage you. I will be there. When you come to me at the end of all of this, the very first thing I will do is wipe your tears away. If you read the Old Testament and expand your understanding of salvation, and you read the prophets, you will realize that the prophets are primarily and mainly waiting for a time where God's people will be free of trouble. That's what the prophets are waiting for. Pick any prophet in the Old Testament. And when they're talking about the glorious future, the glorious future, its main feature in their minds is that God's people will be free from disease, from trouble, from sin, And they will be with God and never have to suffer separation from God again. And Paul here is saying, God has given us eternal comfort. But now listen to this. Not only has he given us eternal comfort, but Paul is now praying that we might have a taste of that comfort now. Did you see this? He has given us an eternal comfort, but now he's praying that you might have a piece of that comfort now. A taste of that comfort now. My wife bakes quite a bit. And I've seen how sometimes, well the few times when I've seen her bake and the children are there, the children are antsy and waiting for the finished product. They are excited about what will come out, what they will enjoy when mama is finished baking. But if mama were to give them a little piece, a taste of batter or something while they are waiting for the finished product, they are joyful and even more happy. It's the same here for us. We are awaiting our eternal comfort, but there is a piece of it that is available to us while we are here. So what is this piece of comfort that is available here? That's what he's praying for. That's really the subject. He's praying that we might have that comfort. So what is it? What does it look like, that comfort, that we, that we can have a taste of here? Robert Louis Stevenson tells of a storm that caught a ship off a rocky coast and threatened to drive it and its passengers to destruction. In the midst of the terror, one passenger, contrary to all the orders, ran up, went to the deck, and made a dangerous run to the pilot house to see the steerman, the one who's steering the ship. And he, he, when he ran there to see the steerman, to see what's going on with the steerman the, at the pilot house. And when he got there, he saw the steerman holding the ship, holding the, the wheel unwaveringly, inch by inch, turning the ship, dealing with the waves. And then the, 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 the steerman, the pilot, he looked back and he saw this, this passenger and he saw him and he smiled at him. And then this passenger ran back down to all the other passengers and gave out a note of cheer. I have seen the face of the pilot and he has smiled all is well. What you need in the midst of all the ups and turves and things moving here and there, 
What you need is to see the face of the pilot. What you need is a glimpse of the face of the pilot and see that nothing has changed for him in the midst of your world that feels like it's turning over and over. You need to see the face. You need a glimpse of the pilot. And sometimes, unlike in Robert Stevenson's story, the Lord comes down. He's the one. While he's piloting, he comes down to you while you're in the dumps and to show you his smiling face. To show you that nothing for him has changed. Everything is going according to plan, no matter what it feels like. So let me encourage you. What you need is to see the face of Christ. Your, the comfort, the encouragement that you need is that to know that Christ is with you and that he has not abandoned you regardless of what it is that is happening. What you need is to know that he is still smiling. You are not smiling. You're, for you, it's over. Oh, Uncle Siam, it's all over. It's everything is everything. It's all it's all a wreck. But for him, he's still smiling. Now, I'd encourage you to pray that he might show his face to you. And you understand what I mean by him showing his face to you? That that nearness of the Spirit, the closeness of the Lord, the warmth of your heart when you are tasting of heaven. What the writer of Hebrews says, tasting of the age to come. That you might know that he's near even in the midst of whatever it is that is going on. And this is not something really for you to do. You can't conjure up his face. I'm not saying draw the face of Jesus smiling. You've never even seen him. No, the application here is to pray that he might show his face to you. Lord, may I taste and see May I, may I feel in my inner man, have my affections moved by the reality of the fact that you are steadfast and are standing. That I might not just have these, these pithy truisms in the facts of the matter in my head, but that it might affect my heart in my inner man. That's what we ought to pray for. We pray for the comfort that comes from the Lord. Well, the second thing is like the first. The first thing is comfort. The second thing is like it. He says there in verse 16, verse 17, May he establish your hearts in every good work and word. While the comfort is to settle our hearts in the midst of challenges here, the strengthening, the establishment is to give us what we need in order to do what we have to. Did you see that in the verse? That he might comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In many ways, our challenge is not that we don't know what we ought to do, that we don't know what work we're supposed to do or what word we're supposed to speak at the right time. Our challenge is that we often do not have the internal energy and stamina to do it. Notice what Paul says our hearts are being established for in every good work and word. 
In mind here, Paul has a transition that he is making in verse 1 of chapter 3, where he will deal with the man who wants to sit lazily and idly by and not work to feed himself. That's what Paul has in mind. What Paul has in view is that all of God's people have good work and good words to speak and that the Lord may establish his people in the work that they're doing. He might strengthen them to help them do what they're supposed to be doing. In, in researching regarding this text, I came across a very interesting conversation on some uh, professional forum regarding people who underestimate tasks. The question was posed, sorry, the question was posed, does there exist a single word, word, either an adjective or a noun, that effectively describes an individual who habitually underestimates things? Uh, uh, the person who... And, what do we call the person who habitually underestimates the cost that is required to do a task or the time that is required to finish a task or the complexity of the task? What, what is the term to call that person who habitually underestimates what's in front of them? The first answer that came back was, yes, there is such a word. The word is engineer. Oh. <laughs> uh. And then there was another answer. The answer said, optimist. But then this devolved into a conversation about the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias in which unskilled individuals suffer from illusory superiority, mistakenly, ra mistakenly rating their ability much higher than is accurate. This bias is attributed to an inability of the unskilled to recognize their ineptitude. Now, stay with me. Someone who is actually competent, someone who actually knows what needs to be done, who's actually competent, will always learn from their previous mistakes. And thereby, in the future, when they have to do the same thing, they will make allowances based on their previous mistakes. But the people of a lesser competence in any task are also less competent at assessing their own competence. They are less competent not only in the task, but also in understanding that they are actually not good at the task. And they will always think that they can do more in less time, or that they can do it better next time, even though they're repeating the same process. It is possible, therefore, that when you take stock of what it is that you are called to, you are underestimating the task and you are not seeing that you need the strengthening of the Lord to do the task. If you're a father, you are called to train your children in the Lord, to discipline them consistently, to spend time with them while also working so you can provide for them. Friends, this is not naturally easy. If you're a student, you are called to not procrastinate, to work hard, to serve the body of Christ with your available time, and to use your unique opportunities for the gospel. This is not naturally easy. It doesn't come naturally to anybody. If you're a mother of small children, you are called to, in the midst of your own exhaustion, 
to not lose your temper and be sensitive to the needs of your children and your husband whilst also living for an eternal kingdom. Friends, this is not naturally easy. If you're an older saint and you're hearing how often how Christians are supposed to age like wine and then you look at yourself and you wonder if there's any wine about you and being told that you're supposed to set an example for others to follow and you, you try to tell people what to do and they persistently don't do it. In the midst of all of that, your body is failing you at every turn. Friends, this is not naturally easy. If you're a Christian teenager, you are called to not only obey your par parents, but also honor them in a manner that you might not feel like. This is not naturally easy. If you are a Christian at any station, you are, you are called, demanded by the gospel of Christ to control yourself at all times. You are never allowed biblically to act unhinged and uncontrolled and say, well, I was just, I was just, the motion got me, the circumstances got me, and I ended up where I ended up. No. You are never allowed to do that. You are called to master yourself and master the situation around you such that you always act in line with the gospel of God. My friend, this is not naturally easy. When we all properly consider what we are called to do, the collective answer from all of us should be, who is sufficient for these things? Who can do this? How can I do all that is required of me? And some people, because they have taken stock of what is required, they do one of two things. One of two things. They turn either to licentiousness or hypocritical legalism. So they turn to licentiousness. There's some people who turn to licentiousness. It's hard to do what is required. There's so much that is called of me to do. Let's just not care and relax and just do what feels easy and natural. Don't be so, com so concerned about what the Lord says you ought to do. Just love. Just love and relax. Christ has died for you. It's all fine. Be easy on yourself. Do what feels natural. Don't, don't be, why are you so striving so much to be a better and better Christian? It's fine. You can't be a better Christian anyway. Licentiousness. Allowing yourself to do whatever it is because what is required is so hard. But then there's another group that goes to hypocritical legalism. And these people say, well, it's hard to do what is required. So I'm going to create a huge set of rules to follow. And I'm going to hide the fact that I'm a hypocrite and I do not actually keep these rules. I'm going to come hard on you when you do not do what is required. Oh, I'm going to come hard on you, proper. I'm going, to make, I'm going to make you feel it. When you have messed things up, I'm going to make you feel it because you see, part of my system is I need to keep a perception to everybody else that there is a standard there and I am keeping it. So I'm going to be very hard on anybody else around me who doesn't keep it so as to hide the fact that I'm even worse. Hypocritical legalism. 
People turn to the people waver. Really, a lot of the world wavers between these two. Licentiousness doesn't matter. Why you so why you so persnickety about what the Bible says? And legalism, adding more and more and more, and being a hypocrite. Friends, this will not do. What's the biblical way? What is the biblical way? Herbert Jackson told how, as a new missionary in some foreign land, he was given a car that would not start without a push. So he's here in this land, and there's a car. The car only starts with a push. So he thought about his problem, and then he devised a plan. He went to a a school near his home. He got permission to take some children out of class and had them push his car off. And then when he's out, he's going, he's doing his rounds, he's doing missionary work, he would either park on a hill facing downward, or he would leave the engine running if there was no hill that faces downward. And then, after two years of living this way with this ingenious plan, he became sick and he couldn't continue in the mission station, so the mission organization sent a new missionary. And then while he's proudly explaining to this new missionary who's going to come and take over his work, explaining what he, what he does and saying, listen here, young man, you have to park it like this, you have to do this. While he's explaining that, the new missionary, while he's explaining, went to the car, opened the bonnet, and started fiddling around and then interrupted him and said, why, Dr. Jackson, I believe the only trouble is this loose cable. He gave the cable a twist He stepped into the car, he pushed the switch, and to Jackson's surprise, the car started. For two years, needless trouble had become routine. Two years, needless trouble had become routine. The power was there all the time. Only a loose connection kept Jackson from putting that power to work. What this illustrates is what Paul prays, that we might have our hearts strengthened, established by God to do what needs to be done. The power is there. In other words, the power is there. We need to pray and ask the Lord to help us to do what is required because the power is there. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11. Whoever serves, listen to this, as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. Not the one who serves in his own flesh, serve in his own, serves in his own ingenuity, serves by their own skill set. No, the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And listen to the reason that Peter says. Peter wants everybody who's serving and doing good work to do it only by the power that comes from Christ. Why, Peter? Because in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Friends, we must seek God for the strength that he supplies. We must seek God for the strength that he supplies. If you feel like you don't need God to do your daily tasks, you have underestimated your daily tasks. If you feel like you don't need God to serve in the right way, you have underestimated what it is that needs to be done. But if you properly estimate and properly think about what the gospel requires of you, the only answer 
should drive you to your needs to beseech and pray and, and plead with the Lord, Lord, help me, who is sufficient for these things? We want a people who serve by grace and not by the flesh. Always remember the example of King Solomon. When he realized that he is the king and not just the king of any old nation, but the king of the nation of God's people, he asked the one thing that he needs, which is wisdom. I don't have it. Who can have the wisdom to lead your people, O God? And the Lord, because Solomon, at that moment in his life, very rarely, he properly estimated his task. What will cause you to not seek the Lord's face for the strengthening of your heart for every good work and word is this problem of thinking too much of your own abilities. You see, friends, good works and good words are hard. Good works and good words are hard. That's what Paul is saying here. For every good work and every good word. But bad works and bad words, aren't they easy? Bad works. The easiest thing in the world is just telling, tell people how you feel the moment that you feel it. The easiest thing in the world is to let the thoughts as they are being generated in your mind go out of your mouth. That's the easiest thing in the world. Just I'm just going to let you know. That's the easiest thing. The easiest thing in the world is to avoid having the conversation that you need to have. It's very easy to shove things under the carpet. The easiest thing in the world is to not go and call out somebody that you have seen sin. You're seeing somebody, this person is destroying themselves, but uh, let me leave it to the pastor. Yeah, the pastor will do it, it's fine. Maybe let me go talk to the pastor about this. Uh-uh, scripture says you go to them. The easiest thing in the world is not do what you're supposed to be doing. The natural thing is to do what you're not supposed to be doing. Because, you're, because we all have the flesh. And the flesh wants to do what is opposite to the spirit. But if we're going to do good works and good work, and we're going to speak good words, my friends, we need the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And for that, we must pray. For that, we must plead with the Lord. Lord, help me. Change me. Make me into Christ. You see, when you think little about what we're called to do, you will not appreciate Jesus Christ. The level of virtue and righteousness flowing in that man such that every waking moment of his entire life, he never once sinned. The level of virtue and righteousness and goodness flowing in him to never have a wrong thought. We were praying this morning and I was battling evil thoughts. The level of godliness that was in him. Every single second, every single moment, every single situation, every single trial, every single joy, he never overstepped any bound. Do you see what we have in Christ? Do you see the Savior we have? That is why his life is enough to pay for a trillion 
upon a trillion of sins. Well, we need comfort for our hearts and we need strengthening for the work. And thirdly and finally, in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says this, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev used to tell of a time when there was a wave of petty theft in the Soviet Union. And to stop this, to curtail this, the authorities put up guards around all the factories in the Soviet Union. At one of the timber works in Leningrad, the guard knew the workers in that factory very well. And so there was one evening when out came Pyotr Petrovich with a wheelbarrow going home, and on the wheelbarrow was a great bulky sack with a suspicious-looking object inside. And the guard said, all right, Petrovich, what have you got inside there? And Petrovich said, oh, I just have sawdust and, and shavings from the woodwork. And Petrovich said, and then, the, and then the, the, the guard said, come on, I wasn't born yesterday. Tip it all out and show me what's, what's in there. I want to see what's inside there. And so he tipped it out. And out came just sawdust and shavings, nothing else. So he was allowed to put it all back into the wheelbarrow, and he wheeled it, and he went home. When the same thing happened every night of the week, the guard became increasingly suspicious. There's something that he's smuggling out of here, and I just can't put my, I don't know what he's doing. And finally, in his curiosity, they went to the bar together, and he, he came to him and said, listen, Petrovich, just tell me what it is that you're smuggling out of here. I promise I won't, I won't, I'll let you go. I won't do anything to you. Just tell me what it is. What is it, what is it that you're smuggling out of the factory and taking to your house? And Petrovich said, wheelbarrows. <laughs> I'm smuggling out wheelbarrows. This story reflects how easily distractible we are, aren't we? We're so easily distracted. What we need could, right, could be right in front of us. But our complexity is such that we need direction to the right thing. We need to be helped. We need to be conducted, directed to the right thing. It was right in front of the guard what was being stolen every night. Wheelbarrows. But he assumed that what was being smuggled was something else. It's the same for us. What you and I need is not a lot of complicated things, friends. What you and I need is a continual and deepening study of the love of God and the endurance of Jesus Christ. What you need is Christ and understanding him, his love, and his steadfastness all the more. And so your heart needs to be directed. Your heart can get so easily entangled and looking at different things and, and looking at the, at the structure of things. But what the real thing, the real issue, what you actually need, what could really strengthen you and help you as you walk, is looking at the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Your heart needs this. 
and you will find yourself huffing and puffing, weak, straggling, when you are not studying and drinking and tasting of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. When you're so obsessed with your own love, you're so obsessed with your own steadfastness, and you're not looking at your Savior. You're not looking at the one who saved you and maintains his salvation of you and says, good luck to anyone who will take this one out of my hand. Jesus defends you. His steadfastness is not past tense, it's current. He defends you. Do you know what Jesus says about anybody who would seek to tempt you so that you can make shipwreck of your faith? You know what Jesus says? It will be much better for that person if there was a, a millstone was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the depths of the sea, compared to what I will do to him. Jesus defends you. His love for you is resolute. He wants all that is good for you. He wants you to enter into his glory. He wants you to have eternal comfort. He wants you to flourish. He sees you as you are, as a repented being in Christ. He doesn't see all these sinful shavings that are on top. He sees what he has redeemed and he loves it deeply and he will protect you. He will keep you until the end. He is steadfast in that way. My friend, there is no application here for you because God is the one who does this. Right? He's saying, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of God. He's the one who does it, not you. So I have no application for you. No application. Other than just to say this, pray the same prayer. Pray the same prayer. Lord, direct my heart to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Lord, I have lost sight of the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Please help me. Lord, direct. I am, I am troubled by so many things. I am looking at so many things. So many other things are the most real thing to me. No. Please help me to have the main thing be the thing that's real to me. And that is the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, please comfort our hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Lord, we pray that you would direct our hearts to your love for us and your steadfastness. In your name we pray. Amen. It is fitting and appropriate that 